Hey, uh, Rob and Jason. I was really looking forward to us recording our, our finale, our season finale, mostly because I just want to be done with you guys, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mutual. I just have to say, like I'm, I imagine for many of our listeners, the events of the last 10 days or however long it's been in terms of George Floyd, his murder by the police in Minneapolis, the protests that have erupted. It's just difficult not to at least take a moment to to talk about it. I'd be curious to know how you guys are feeling and and yeah, any thoughts that you have about it. Sure. This is a moment in American history that feels as significant as any that I've experienced and I I do think it's worth pausing for a second at least to yeah, at least express some solidarity. Yeah, of course, it's always a little shocking, a little jarring. I am not in a place where there's, you know, militarized police and National Guards going through town. But I still see that, you know, images and I have friends who live in cities. And it must be really weird. It's really surreal. In a sense, though, I'm also kind of glad it's happening. It's a little overdue, I think. And I mean, not the deaths and not all the violence, but the sense of moral outrage that brings enough people out to demonstrate that, there's en- that we've had enough, that is kind of cathartic, even though I'm farming, right? I'm in the countryside. I'm farming. I'm busy doing that. But I'm also glad that's happening. And I don't feel like I can participate as much as I would like to because I'm not in one of these cities that's going through all this. But I, I, I'm really encouraged in some sense by the, the amount of people that are really stepping outside of their normalcy to do this. I have to say that I have been spending some time thinking about what's different in this moment. You know, if, hey, Rob, you said this is historic. And I think that that's true, that if all the other things that were happening in this year, 2020, that we've all already been pummeled by hadn't <laughs> happened, right? Yeah. And this would have occurred. It would feel historic as well. But the fact that it's in the context of the pandemic and the economic shocks and the loss of of livelihoods for so many people, I mean, there, there obviously there's a, a relationship there. I don't know yes. exactly what that is. I don't want to make assumptions and make easy sort of declarative statements saying, well, this is because... This is different this time because people are on the street because they've lost their jobs and they hadn't before. I think what's different, at least from my perception, is maybe white people are finally getting something here. And maybe the fact that we're all have been in social isolation and out of our quote unquote normal routine, there aren't these other distractions, creates a space for people to be like, I'm paying attention to this. Where Because the truth is, this violence against the African-American community has been waged for decades, centuries. Yes, 400 years. There is unfortunately no shortage of really horrific, tragic, unconscionable moments that should have galvanized us and didn't. And I, I honestly feel some thankfulness that the recent incidents have been getting caught on video. Not that anybody wants to see any of that. It's sickening, but... To have something like George Floyd's murder captured in such stark detail, I mean, it's one of those things that, of course, it, it breaks your heart and, of course, it makes you mad. And 
you just want to follow up something like that with real action. It's like all of these incidents build upon one another. And I think, you know, you just get to that point where that's it. I can't I can't just sit and watch anymore. I've got to get out and play a role, do mm-hmm. something. You know, we've got to have some change. It's something has to be different from this point forward. Oh, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> I've been driving tractors like nine hours yesterday. You're using fossil fuels, man. Uh, I know. Over like big diesel, the diesel engine's humming. Uh, it's a little tractor. It's only 35 horsepower, but thank God I have that. But anyhow. Yeah, 30, 35 horses are quite a bit stronger than you are the last time I checked. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway. Um, I'd like to see you behind 35 actual horses, you know, right. trying, to, <laughs> trying right. to plow a field or whatever. I'm just sipping dead algae and uh, and just chugging along, you know, tilling and... Listening to your podcast. Listening. It's like, it, it's try- I'm trying to defend myself against the noise of the engine, actually. That's probably another horse worth of electricity just to deliver your podcast <laughs> off the server farm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm sure it is. Right. Yeah. So, um, but I'm thankful to have it. So I've been just like, boom, boom, boom. There's a, a couple recently that really caught my attention related to this. I'm not only listening to about, about this, but of course I am a little bit. And the Daily, a podcast in New York Times did one on why hasn't police reform really works yet. So there's sociologists, you know, criminologists, they've all figured out essentially how to change policing to be safer for everybody, to be fairer, how to weed out bad cops, how to de-escalate. The techniques are known. It's understood. And in fact, Minneapolis was an example where they had a reform-minded mayor, they had a police chief who sued for discrimination and is now the police chief, and yet they haven't been able to enact these reforms. And so they went over like six reasons why the institution of police in America was just locked into this maladaptive behavior. And I was just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this is so much like all these other systems we talk about in this late conservation phase, let's say of the adaptive cycle, where it's so hard to change anything until it absolutely ends up in catastrophe. And they had a follow-up interview with the mayor of Minneapolis, who seems like a pretty reasonable fellow who understands the institutional crisis and has been trying to reform it. And he's like, yeah, we've got some problems that even me as a mayor and even a police chief can't get rid of these bad cops. It's just horrific. If the institution is not going to change, it's going to take something outlandish, extravagant, violent, like we're seeing, to get enough attention. That's a good point. I mean, we've talked about the adaptive cycle uh, earlier this year. Asher, you interviewed Nafiz Ahmed. He talked about the adaptive cycle as a good way to, it's a lens through which you can see what's happening in current events in society around us. And uh, I think, yeah, you're right, Jason, or, or the podcast, uh, The Daily is right. They didn't say that term. They didn't use that term, of course. Right. But it was like this institutional lock-in, this inability to reform something that's clearly messed up. But then that's not just, of course, police reform. It goes deeper. Of course, it goes to an entire socioeconomic system that's been locked in for hundreds of years of this growth and this institutionalized racism and patriarchy and 
exploitation. That's all locked in too. That's what we're all dealing with. And I was thinking about climate change, right? And how all these governments making pledges to do things they can't really do because they're locked into growth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even though they, oh yeah, we're going to reform the police. Oh yeah, we're going to lower our emissions. No, you're not. Not until the system is different. <laughs> I hate to bring it back to the coronavirus pandemic, but I do wonder if it has taught us some some empathy. Yeah. And that in and also a recognition that we can't go it alone in a sense. The health and well being of everybody is in our self interest. Maybe that's part of what's and 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 maybe also just seeing the I, I totally agree with what you said, Rob, about this kind of brutality becoming much more visible to people when it hadn't mm -hmm. been before and the benefits of technology for that and social media. But I also think, you know, maybe seeing the failure of our institutions to take care of us in the context of the pandemic, people feeling like, you know, I've, we've seen so, so many, at least I have so many sort of memes talking about the real looting is, yeah, <laughs> you know, bailing out these these corporations and what they oh, do. Did you see that um, onion? Did you see that onion um, parody of this? What, what was it like? Yeah, looters chastised for not setting up a private equity firm before going after. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so good. Yeah. That was the best. It's like right. So I think people seeing that and like, why does it take this? You know, why why was it the? I'm making up a number here. The ten thousand four hundred twenty seventh incident like this, you know what I mean? Right. Not the first, second, or fifth, or eighth, or whatever, to, to get us off our asses. I don't know it, Cher. It sent me down a road of of reflection on the past. And and I've, you know, we've joked around on this podcast about my, uh, my humble beginnings from Georgia, right? Growing up in a, uh, you know, it's funny to say in Georgia. I was in a suburb of Atlanta. Are you, are you going to do white. the whole... The whole jerk thing. I was poor. I was born a poor black child. <laughs> no, no, I am definitely not. Uh, but I, I think the point I'm trying to make is, I, you know, I grew up in a place that had a lot of racial tension in it. You didn't see it that much because it was a mostly white suburb. But uh, where I went to high school, uh, we had a significant black population. You know, when I was coming up, I had a pretty good anti-racist attitude. I don't know why, if it was my parents or or the teachers. I, I had a lot of black teachers that I, hmm. uh, that I loved and I had non-white friends. And so I don't know, I didn't think that much about racism until I either started reading about it or, or seeing it. And it was amazing there. I mean, you know, we had symbols of it all around, right? The Georgia flag had a Confederate flag as the main part of it. Right. I, I was born in the town of Stone Mountain, Georgia. The the actual mountain has like one of the world's biggest carvings on it of of three Confederate generals or whatever. It's it's uh, huh. Robert Lee and and Jackson and uh, and Jefferson Davis. Huh. And so like these things are around you, but you know I, I didn't ever back then think about what it means. But I can't even imagine how offensive. Can you just Jesus? Yeah. That's Walking in the shadow of that piece of shit, like oh, yeah, man. yeah, like a friend of mine in high school, like how how, how welcome could they possibly feel right. going to Stone Mountain Park, right? Um, so I, I honestly, uh, I guess the worst of it though was when people would do stuff like 
you know, you'd be in a group of friends and and if it happened to be all white, somebody would inevitably look around, make sure that it's okay to start spouting whatever racist bullshit they want to spout. Uh. To me, that was part of the background. And I, I wanted to get away from that. I thought that sucked. And so I, I feel like I, I went north, right? I went, to, I left Atlanta, I went to Philadelphia. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, then throughout life, I've moved different places. And something I've noticed is you can't get away from it. There right. is no escaping the white privilege that people spout. There's no escaping the unfairness that people of color face. I mean, I, I often a lot of people think of Oregon as a, a progressive, especially around Portland, a progressive kind of a place. And we've done some amazing protests up here. So I'm pretty proud to see Portlanders doing that. At the same time, uh, Oregon has probably about the worst history of, yeah. of racist behavior uh, of all the Western states. I mean, it's a, it's horrendous. And so there is no running away. There is no getting to the place that is fair. So I think there's nothing left right now than to express your outrage, express your ideas for change and really really take in this moment and and have some solidarity. Yeah. I'm going to quibble with you a bit. You said there's no escaping. I think maybe that was your experience because you were sensitive to it. I think yeah. the truth of the matter is that millions and millions and millions of white Americans have chosen escapism. They've chosen yes. to ignore it. They've, white flight. You know, I don't even mean that. Uh, that's an active, and, yeah. and that's sort of an act of, of, basically segregation. Yeah. This. Um, I'm just talking about the complacency, you know, and I'll, I'll include yeah. myself in that, where we've had the privilege of not having, frankly, to think about this or contend with it and deal with it. And I think we have to own that. And if, if there's outrage now, I think that outrage needs to be turned not just to the institution of the police, it's about the institutionalized racism, the structural yeah. racism that exists in every facet of, of our society. And yeah. so much of that, I think, for us who are white, comes back to recognizing our whiteness and what that means. Yes, it's about the experience of people of color, and particularly the experience of, of African-Americans in this country with that unique history. I don't want to forget Native Americans and others who have been persecuted terribly in this country. But a lot of this comes back to the special privilege of whiteness that we've, we've created and we've all benefited from in this country. And, and I think maybe in this moment, it will force us to recognize this is beyond saying, well, I'm not a racist. Look, I got black friends. I've never had a racist thought. I don't do this and that and whatever. No, we've, we've tacitly, if not directly, participated in this. We at PCI have really struggled with this question. You know, we, we talk about four E's, the E4 crises, and, and the, that's energy, the environment, the economy, and equity. And we talk about the relationship between those four E's and how they come together. And each of those issues have their, their tensions, their points of crises that, that we mm -hmm. identify. 
that are kind of inherent within them, but it's also the interaction of them. And we try to help people understand that. But, but the equity piece of it is by far our weakest leg of the stool for us organizationally. And we're a white organization and most of our audience is white. And I'm not mentioning this to pat ourselves on the back at all, but to just relate and experience. We've talked about how to build our own capacity and our knowledge and our strength in this area coming from who we are and how to address that. And we wanted to start by recognizing what it means to be white. There's a a really fantastic podcast series. There's a podcast called Seen on Radio, and that's S-C-E-N-E, Seen on Radio. And they did did a kind of a special series uh, that was 14 episodes long uh, a few years ago called Seeing White. And it was really about whiteness in America. And one of the best things I think we've, yeah, we've done as an organization was we said to all our staff and we encouraged the board as well to, to listen to those 14 episodes and spend a lot of time talking about it. And it's led directly, I think, to things like the book project that Richard Heinberg has been working on, looking at power dynamics, because I think a lot of this does mm-hmm. come back to power. Yeah. In his case, it's power over nature and power over other people. And I just, I, one, would really recommend to our listeners, you've, you know, you never want to tell them to stop listening to you. And in our case, <laughs> maybe you should stop listening to us. But, yeah. you know, yeah. people need a break. <laughs> turn turn us off and, and go listen to that instead, honestly, um, with an open open heart and open ears. It's great that people are showing their solidarity. They're going out in the street and protesting. They're, they're contacting their local government. They should be doing all of those things if you can do those things. And, and don't forget to vote because a lot of this does come down to leadership. But I, I really hope that we all are checking our own privilege you know, if you are white in, in trying to understand that. And yeah. it comes back to something that, that you guys had said earlier that we talked about earlier. This is about giving up something in a, in a sense. We're talking about the institutions that are, Jason, you brought this up, the institutions that are really resistant to change. And it's not just the police force. If we think about how the changes that we're going to have to make as a society around climate and these other issues we have to be honest that there's something sort of giving up of something in order to do that. And, and I would say we need to think about what we are giving up in terms of our privilege in order to ensure that, right. that everyone is treated equally, you know? And I don't know what that would give up as a thing. I sort of see this as like a win-win. Like, I don't want to live in the society like this. It's stressful. It's awful. And my wife is... Uh, she's wonderful. I love her so much. And she works in healthcare and she works for these clinics that basically have to have take people in to see them who are slipping through all the cracks, right? Because we have this just really screwed up healthcare system. And so there are people, for example, in this area who work in the agricultural industry and in the food service industry who are so underpaid and underappreciated. And some of them might be poorly documented or some of them might just be working in these high stress, low wage jobs, and they make too much money to qualify for the Oregon health plan or whatever it is, but not enough to really afford insurance. And so they come here, they come to her clinics. And so what are we giving up really 
by making sure people like this who who fucking feed us aren't stressed out all the time about how paying paying simple bills like that. So I'm you know I'm sure there's some stuff we would have to give up, but I'm saying, but in many ways I see it as this like, are you kidding me? Why why do we want to live in a society like this? I I saw this listen. I'm sorry, I'm on a rant now. There was this other podcast I listened to where it was stories of people who are African Americans and what their experience was like as a kid being like harassed by cops or even trying to, working at a mall and having some mall cop you know not let them into their work site through the back door just people on freaking power trips look i i think one of the things we can think about with privilege is yeah we can be outraged at these things and we are not experiencing them ourselves so understanding that if we're not going to experience it, then there's no way they should experience it. And look, I think this is a time for white people to uh, not be silent, right? I mean, I think in some ways you're seeing that meme, silence is compliance. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I, I can understand that. But even more important than speaking up is also knowing when to shut the hell up Mm. and when to, when to listen. I mean, that's what I think this is a time that's one of the things we have to give up is all we got to quit sucking the air out of the room and listen to what's actually happening with people of color out there. So I don't know. I propose in that spirit that we shut the hell up. What do you guys think? 